God has brought you here this morning, and um, hopefully you guys all had good Thanksgiving, lots of, lots of food, yeah, yeah, some, some of you, I guess not, okay, um, that's all right, um, but I am, I'm so thankful you guys are here. Um, for the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Romans, uh, but for today, uh, we're actually going to take a break from the book of Romans, because it's, uh, like Pastor Kyle was saying, is the start of our Advent season um, if you're like me, you didn't really grow up with Advent. I, I, I didn't really actually know what Advent was until I came to this church. And um, usually my family, the way we got ready for the Christmas season, we would all get together, have Thanksgiving, uh, have a bunch of arguments, uh, get together, play some football, uh, try to kill each other on the football field. Uh, the next day, put up our fake Christmas tree and throw that, you know, that tinsel. You guys remember that, like the silver tinsel that used to, and you just spread all over your house that is now banned in the state of California. Like just vacuuming it all up, trying, trying to get ready for Christmas season. Christmas comes along, spend way too much money, and then it's over. <laughs> and we were like, what just happened, right? That was, that was our Christmas. Um, that was our Christmas season, how we got ready for it. But um, maybe you guys, maybe you guys share in that. I don't know. Uh, but then me, personally, I went into the military and something happens in the military. Uh, I know I got some military folks in here. Um, something happens when you, uh, when you spend Christmas in the desert. Uh, it's, just, it's just different, and, and something different happens. And for me, I know in particular, like, it, it made me dread the holidays. Uh, the more I spent time away from home, um, I missed my family. I wanted to be home. Uh, stuff was happening. People were dying all around me. It was just, it was just a bad time of year for me. Um, but... That's, that's my story. Maybe you share in that as well. Uh, maybe some of you, you come to the Christmas season, and it's all about consumerism, and you buy too, way too much stuff, and uh, you just dread it because you know you got to get that perfect Christmas gift, and maybe you got to get that last Cabbage Patch doll, and you just got smacked in the face by some angry mom who was trying to get the one for her kid. I don't know. Lots of people have lots of different stories about Christmas and getting ready for the Christmas season. Uh, but what I discovered is Advent is a way for us to prepare our hearts and minds and getting ready for Christ, for the celebration of Christ, for his birth. We can see in the gospel that we have this hope that is, that is just this joyous occasion and we get to celebrate the fact that Christ looked down upon us from his throne and said, but I want to save my people and so I'm going to come to them. We get a chance to celebrate that. But Advent, what is Advent? Literally, it means the, the celebration of a notable person or thing. So some people, they are celebrating the Advent of Star Wars in a couple weeks. I know I am. I am super excited. Y'all don't even know. It, it is going to be so good. Uh, some people are celebrating the Advent of the iPhone 10. Why you would want to pay $1,000 for a phone, I don't know. But if that's your deal, go for it. For us as Christians, we celebrate the advent of the coming Messiah. We get, we get ready for the fact that Christ has come to dwell among us. That's what our advent is about. And so advent is the four Sundays leading up to the Christmas, to the Christmas season when we see God coming in the flesh to dwell among his people. And it is great news. So for our advent season this year, we're going to focus our hearts and minds on preparing to celebrate the coming of Christ and all that he means to us. And for today in particular, like Miss Melanie read, we're going to be in Genesis 3.15. And I believe that was on page 3. And when God, for the first time, delivers to us this good news that we don't always have to live in celebration from him, excuse me, from separation from him. 
that he's gonna give us this hope come in the form of a little baby, that Jesus is this promised savior that God has been preparing us for ever since Genesis up until now. This first gospel is still our only hope. That was a Star Wars phrase right there. I'm super excited about it. (laughs) This passage sets up why there's so much strife in the world and, and we see that God is active in helping us get through this strife. But first, I got to give us some, some background into the book of Genesis, right? We're in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God creates everything, right? God is so powerful that all he does is he speaks everything into existence. We serve a powerful God, church. And not only does he speak everything to existence, but he reaches down into the dust and hand forms man. Intimate forming man. They are, they are the pinnacle of his creation. And, and as the pinnacle of his creation, they were actually set up to be God's image bearers, meaning that when the rest of the creation saw God's creation in man, they were supposed to be the exact image of who God was. That was, that was the way the re- God originally set it up. But we also see the introduction of another character. We see Satan, one of God's chief angels, But Satan wants to rebel against God's God's rule and share in his authority. Actually, he wants to usurp God's authority and have the kingdom for himself. And any good king can allow that. So God casts him out of his kingdom. But once Satan is cast out of his kingdom, he actually comes to Adam and his wife Eve and he convinces them to join in a rebellion against God. And they fall for it. And so since Adam is our representative in front of God. We are now liable for Adam's mistake. Now we share in his separation from God and the subsequent death, disease, destruction, and disappointment that follows out of that separation from God. But some people have a problem with this. I, I talk to people, they're like, why? If, if Adam was the one who made a mistake, why am I the one that's being punished for it? But, it, but this isn't a new concept for us. If you, if you watch team sports, you know that if one player on the team commits a penalty, the entire team gets penalized. This is not a new concept. Or we don't even have to look at a team sport. We can look in our own households because if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody in the house happy. <laughs> right? This first gospel is still our only hope. Let's go back and read it in Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is simultaneously a curse handed to Satan and at the same time a blessing that's handed to the woman Eve. This verse is saying that there's going to be a beef between Satan and the woman, between his offspring and her offspring. And this is not like a, a Roadrunner Coyote beef or, or a, a Tupac and Biggie beef or a, a Hatfields and McCoys beef. It's not like a UNR, UNL beef, UNLV beef, which, good job, Wolfpack. <laughs> it's not even like the beef that I have with peas, because I, I, I really hate peas, man. I, something about it. Now, this, is on, this is on some real cosmic level, ancient, metaphysical type of beef. But at the same time that we see the beef in this passage, we also see what theologians would call the proto-evangelium or the first gospel. The first time that God announces a good news and it's proclaiming that God's people will be able to triumph over Satan and all of his schemes. But if left to ourselves, we can't win this war. It It took Jesus, Eve's prototypical offspring, to deliver a crushing blow to Satan. 
And if we're in him, we get to share in his victory and await his return when we finally get to live in peace with God for all eternity. That is the good news. This first gospel is still our only hope. That is my main point for our passage today. And supporting, I'm going to give us three points that we can chew on for a little bit. In this passage, we see, uh, we see the problem, right? We also see that there's a promised Messiah. And then we also see that there's a secured hope. Those are the three points that we're going through. The first gospel is still our only hope because we are up against a powerful opponent. That is the problem. The first gospel is our only hope against a powerful opponent. Look at what it says in 315. It says, I will put, excuse me, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Because of this problem that's initiated in Genesis, we now fight a a fight on a three-front war. We fight against the world, we fight against our own flesh, and we fight against Satan and everything that he's trying to do against God. And it's a war that we can't win on our own. We try our hardest. But if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we lose more than we dare to admit. How do we fight against the world? This, this world is against God and his creation. Like Pastor Kyle was saying, excuse me, like the video was saying, every year we take up a donation for an organization called Living Water International. And what they do is they, they take uh, money and they go into places around the world that people have to travel for at least three miles, sometimes down steep mountains, to get water that's dirty that they bring back home and consume it. And at the same time, consuming diseases like malaria and diarrhea, things that we can go to the store and get a pill to kind of help us, but people like that die from daily. Can you imagine giving your child water that you know you're going to kill them with? And these people live with that day after day. The world against God's people. It's heartbreaking. heartbreaking that there's hunger in the world, that people are homeless, that for some people there's no hope during this Christmas season. Some people have lost their spouses. They're living with grief, the world set against God's people. But we don't have to look all the way around the world. We can look right here in our own backyard. I've got, I've got two little kids and my daughter, when she was younger, <clears throat> we were driving down the street and a taxi came pulling up beside us and she loves horses, right? She's like, Daddy, I want to go to the Mustang Ranch. I'm like, oh, no. That's, that's not what that is, baby. We can't go there. But why is that? Why is that that we can drive down the street every single day and we don't notice all the, all the terrible things that the world is just okay with? Why are we not bothered by the fact that there's, there's, there's prostitution that's being advertised right on our streets? We live in a world that's broken, and it's against God's people. Why are we not bothered by the fact that when we go to class, for some of us that are still in school, you go to class, and the instructor is against everything that you stand for in Christ? Why are we not bothered by the fact that when we change the channel, we go to certain movies, that things pop up on the screens that you know your eyes shouldn't be consuming? Why are we not bothered by the fact that when we go to work and we talk around the water cooler, that the conversations turn to everything except what's good? We are, the world is against us in so many ways. But not only the world, also our flesh, right? Why is it that the things that we want 
in life, the things that we really crave are the very things we know we shouldn't have. Take this for example. Now I know, deep down in my heart, that if I take one single bite of this, it's going to be about 100,000 million calories that my body cannot handle. Right? But doesn't that look delicious? Oh, man. Somebody's like, yeah, oh, my goodness. Right? But even if we taste it, one little taste, what happens? We don't want just one bite. We want to consume the whole thing. And that's the nature of sin. Like, Satan is saying to us, like, just, no, just take a nibble. You, you, you don't have to take any more than that. Just take one small bite. And that's how he convinces us over and over to, to self-indulge in sin on a daily basis. Just take one, and then we end up consuming the whole thing, drowning ourselves in our own sin, our flesh craving the very things that we know we shouldn't have. And Paul described this too, right? Paul described it, he said, and Pastor Kyle, he said last week uh, that his wife describes this as the doo-doo verses. The, the things that I know I shouldn't do, I end up doing. The things that I don't want to do, I do. And when I do them, I feel like doo-doo. <laughs> why is that? Why, why, are we, why are we like that? Our, our own flesh is set against us, craving the very things we know we shouldn't have. Does that describe you? Do, do, you, do you ever feel that? Maybe it's lust, maybe it's pride, maybe it's gossiping. Maybe it's, maybe it's talking about somebody behind their back. What is it for you? And then we have Satan as our great enemy, right? 1 Peter 5 describes him as a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. You guys ever watch the animal planet when, they, when it's nighttime and they turn on night vision and the lion is like peering through the grass and you could tell through TV, like, if I'm there, that dude is eating me. I don't... There's no chance that I have. The Bible says that Satan is like that, looking to devour you. What chance do you stand? This first gospel is still our only hope against a powerful opponent because we can't win this war ourselves. Even if we were able to keep the world and Satan at bay behind the walls of, of, of legalism and religion and, and just white-knuckling and trying our best, we still are behind the wall with the great enemy of our own flesh. Where can I run? What can I do? I need help. Do you need help? We are up against a powerful opponent. There's no place for respite. And as the song goes, there's nowhere to run to, baby. Nowhere to hide. Where can we go? We need someone to fight for us. And that's, that's my second point. The hope that we have, we find in the promised Messiah. Because of this beef, God has given us a savior. Look at what it says in the rest of the verse. It says, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. Because we're fighting this war that we can't win on our own, we are in need of a rescuer, someone to fight this fight on our behalf. But the problem is actually more, more extreme and more dire than we know. And sometimes when we read the Bible, I think like we read it in English, but there's a lot of words that we need to go back to the original language to find out what the, what the message is actually saying. In particular, we can look at this word offspring. It says, I'm going to put... I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And as we look at that word, your offspring, it's actually listed there in a plural sense. I'm going to put 
It says offspring in a, in, a, in a generational sense, like millions and hundreds of people, right? <clears throat> but on the other hand, it says her offspring, and it's used in the singular. And just because I like nerd nuggets, here's one. This, this word offspring that's right here that's used in the singular, it is the only place that it's used in the Bible in this context. The only place where Genesis 3.15 is describing a Messiah But we ask ourselves as we look at this, who is Satan's offspring? So I'm going to put enmity between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. Who is, who is Satan's offspring? And I think we would, we would answer that and we say, well, definitely like Satan worshipers, like they, they are definitely Satan's offspring or, or people who molest children, right? We would, we would definitely point the finger at them. But we, we do a good job of like that person has to be, that person has to be pointing at different people groups, right? But what does the Bible say? Who does the Bible say are Satan's offspring? We can take a look at a verse like Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and it'll be up on the screen. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying, it out, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Oh, man. That's saying that, that we were sons of disobedience. That we are children of wrath. But that can't be right, right? No, let's, let's, let's look somewhere else. Okay. Let's look at 1 John 3, right? 1 John 3 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Oh, man, we are in trouble. This says whoever makes a practice of sinning is, is of the devil, that they're sons of disobedience, that they're children of wrath, that we're at war with God. We, we are in trouble. Because this isn't like we're up against a war against our neighbor. We're up against the God who got, got sick of the world's sinfulness and sent a flood to flood the entire planet. This is who we're at war with. We're at war with the God who, who saw the deceitfulness and, and, and the unrighteousness of a particular town in Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed the whole thing with fire and brimstone. This is the God we're at war with. Where can we run? And every time we sin, every time we join in Satan's schemes, every time we fall for a temptation of the devil, we are proving to God that we are not on his side. We need a rescuer. We're not, we're not able to do this on our own. Where can we turn? Where can we run? The God who sees everything. We need a rescuer. So who is it? Who, who can this person be? Who is, who is Eve's offspring that God is saying is going gonna, is gonna to crush the work of Satan? Church, I tell you this morning, by the glory of God, it is the man Jesus Christ. It is God come in the flesh to dwell among his people. 
And we see his description laced throughout the entire Bible. Look at what it says in Isaiah 53. It says he's going to be a man of suffering, familiar with grief, that he bore our suffering, that he was pierced for our transgression, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that like sheep before the shear, so he went to his death and didn't open up his mouth that they made his grave with the wicked, although he had done no violence, that he bore the sins of many to make intercessions for the transgressors. But we don't have to stop there. We can look at what the angel of the Lord told his father Joseph in Matthew 1. He says, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord, by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God has come to dwell among us. But we don't have to stop there. We can look at what the angel Gabriel told his mother Mary in Luke 1. It says, Behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and his, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. But we don't have to stop there. We can keep going. We can look at the Old Testament when it says in Deuteronomy 18. We can look at his description in Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah 11, 1 through 4, Psalm 110, 4, Micaiah 5, 2. I could go on for about two hours, but I know they're trying to limit me in the back. So. And I'm, I'm not trying to keep you all from y'all's burritos. So. This first gospel is still our only hope because Jesus is the one that God promised in the very beginning. Jesus is the one who saw the beef, knew we couldn't handle the fight on our own, and decided to join the fight as our champion. No longer are we considered sons and daughters of disobedience. We are now considered sons of God, of the Most High God. No longer are we held captive by the temptations of the world, by the desires of our own flesh. We have been set free. We have had our minds renewed and transformed. We witnessed right here in the scriptures the defeat of that great enemy, Satan. Good news, church. Jesus wins. If if there's anything that I can leave you with for this Advent season is that Jesus has won the battle on our behalf. Look at what it says in the rest of 315. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise that God gives to Eve through Satan's curse that one day her offspring is going to do damage against Satan. That, that the promise will bruise Satan's head or, or other translations say he's going to crush Satan's head. The head is a, a symbol of power and rule and authority. So in other words, this promise is saying that Jesus is going to crush Satan's reign over all humanity. No longer do we have to remain powerless against our great enemy of the world, our own flesh, and Satan. If Jesus had a nickname, it would be the head crusher. Jesus being the head crusher, time and time again, crushing the works of Satan. Jesus saying, you don't have authority over my people, they're mine. We can celebrate that. Look forward to his second coming. And we see him winning time after time. When when Jesus wins, we see him winning against temptation. We see him doing the things that Adam should have done in the garden, but doing them on our behalf so that we can be rescued from our own temptations. We can see him using scripture in in the desert when he was being tempted in the desert by Satan. 
using scripture to, to, to defeat what temp, what the temptation that Satan was bringing. When Satan was trying to tempt him with, with power and rule and authority, and he, he knows that God had already given him those things, he uses the word of God against Satan's schemes and says, it is written as his authority. Satan, you don't have authority over me. My father in heaven has already given me authority. Church, we can use the word of God against the temptation of Satan. Jesus, as he was being tempted when he was on his way to the cross and he's telling his followers, guys, I'm getting ready to leave. I'm not going to always be with you. You're going to miss me. I'm not always going to be around to, to, see, to, to hug you and kiss you. Uh, one of his followers, Peter, came up and he says, Jesus, we can do this another way. I know you've been planning this since before the foundations of the earth, but we can, we can find some other way. And Jesus, knowing what Satan was doing behind Peter's words, he tells Satan, get behind me, Satan. Get out of my face, dude. I don't have to listen to your schemes. I'm not going to fall for your temptations. Church, we can do that. We can, we can share in the victory of Christ in fighting against temptation. We don't have to give in to them. We can see Jesus winning as he's in his earthly ministry, as he's following the laws of God perfectly. Hebrews 4 says that we have a great high priest who, though he's been tempted in every single way, just like we are, yet was without sin. Let us therefore draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. We can do that. We can see Jesus winning in his ministry. We can see him winning as he's casting out demons, as he's healing sick people, as he's mending broken relationships in this world. We see him winning time after time. We can see Jesus winning on the cross. Church, every single time that, that we fall for one of Satan's tricks, every single time that we, that we join in Satan's rebellion, every single time that we fall short of the glory of God, we are adding a debt to an account that we can never pay off. Every single time that we sin, we are putting a debt on that account. Church, I'm telling you this morning, when Jesus died and bled up on the cross, he paid off that account. When God looks at you, he doesn't look at your unrighteousness. He sees the righteousness of Christ and, and credits that to your account. We can see him in his eternal atoning sacrifice winning on the cross. We can see him restoring the relationship between God and his people. The book of Romans says that we are now at peace with God. We're no longer at war with God because of the sacrifice of Christ. We can now be at peace with God. Are you happy about that? That God was set against you in war, but now you are at peace with God because of Christ on the cross. I was trying to get ready for the sermon. I was trying to think of illustrations to kind of help me uh, get my mind around what I was going to say. And I thought back to the great boxing match between uh, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Um, some of you may have been alive. Okay, yeah. Some of you don't know who I'm talking about. Anyway, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, right? Muhammad Ali probably considered one of, probably the greatest boxer of all time. Uh, but he was up against a powerful opponent at George Foreman, right? I mean, George Foreman was massive. He was just a massive man. Like arms like way out to here and like hands were like way back here. And people said that when he hit you, it was like getting hit by a truck. And, and he would just hit people 
unashamedly, just, just pound on people, right? But they fought uh, in, a, in one of the greatest boxing matches of all time. And as they were fighting, they fought for nine rounds. But for eight and a half rounds, George Foreman was just beating the daylights out of, out of Muhammad Ali. And sure, Muhammad Ali was getting in, you know, some shots. But for the most part, George Foreman was just taking it to him round after round, just, just hammering him. I mean, like reaching back from like somewhere near his backbone and just like wham, just round after round for eight and a half rounds. And surely... George Foreman was thinking to himself, I've got this. There's no way he can continue to take my punishment. But then something happened at the end of the ninth round. Muhammad Ali on the ropes, he slips a punch, and within 10 seconds is able to turn the tide of the entire match. Church, that's what Christ did on the cross. At the cross, Satan must have thought that he had reversed that promise that God had made in the beginning. Yeah, Jesus had got some blows in, you know, healing sick people and, and, and healing relationships. Yeah, yeah, yada, yada. But as he saw Jesus on the cross, he was like, yeah, I got this. I'm going in for the knockout blow. He must have thought that his heel was the one that was merely bruised and that he was getting ready to crush the head of Christ. He must have thought that. Leading up to the cross, we see Jesus being whipped and beaten and cut and spit on, abused and humiliated taking every single shot that Satan had. And then came the cross, right? The knockout punch. Jesus hanging there, bloody, humiliated, seemingly defeated. But then something glorious happens, right? Jesus slips that punch because he didn't stay dead. Jesus turns the cross into a victory. Jesus rose from the grave, church. Satan thought he'd won, but the resurrection reveals that Satan was played for the fool. Christ turning the cross into a victory. The promise here that in this passage that the Messiah is going to crush the head of Satan is a victory won through death. The bruising of Christ's heel. But that's the promise of, that's the nature of the promise, right? Victory through suffering. Holiness through struggle. Godliness through persecution. Following Christ through daily taking up their cross. All of us want glory, but are we going to walk the path of humility to get it? We all want to have eternal life, but are we willing to die to ourselves? Are you? Are you willing to live in humility? Are you willing to, to lay down what you think you need for your life for the sake of Christ? The first gospel is still our only hope because we need Jesus fighting the battle on our behalf and we can see it every time we gaze upon the cross that Jesus has won the battle. But guess what, church? Even though Jesus has won the battle, he's still coming back to win the war. And don't, don't we feel like that? Don't we feel like every day like we're fighting this battle on our own, that there's, all, there's still all this stuff that's happening in our life? We still got, we still got angry bosses that, that make it miserable to go to work. We still wake up to screaming kids where you just want to tie them to the ceiling sometimes. We still, we still struggle being, sometimes we struggle with being overweight or not being able to gain weight. Sometimes we struggle with the death of a loved one. Sometimes we struggle with just all this stuff. And we cry out like, God, when are you going to do something? 
Why are you letting me fight this fight on my own? We, we join in with the psalmist sometimes when we say, God, where are you? Come, come help me. Why aren't you here? But we can look at a verse like Deuteronomy 130. It says, the Lord who goes before you will himself fight for you. Church, we don't fight on our own. We are not fighting this battle by ourselves. The Lord God is fighting on our behalf. We could look at a verse from Romans 16, 20. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We get to share in the victory of Christ right now. The reason we enter into this Advent season is because we're looking forward to the celebration of the birth of Christ. The fulfillment of the promise that God is going to provide the one who is going to undo the works of our rebellion. The reminder that though Christ came and defeated Satan, he's going to come back again to fully establish his kingdom. That's the hope we enter into this Advent season. And listen, I know there's people here, maybe you are new to this whole Christian thing, not sure if you believe it yet. Maybe you just flat out don't believe it at all and you were just conned into coming because somebody gave you turkey. Praise God for the saints who use turkey for trickery. Here's the thing I would say to you. This is what the Christian faith is all about. All of our hope in life and death rests in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We don't have a hope on our own. There's nothing we could do to earn his favor toward us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We can't get right on our own. And and we don't want to spend eternity in, in, in separation from God. Everything we have in life and death rests in what Christ did on the cross. And if anybody has ever represented Christianity in any other kind of way, I am so sorry. That is not who we are as children of God. All of our hope rests on him. But here's my question for you. Is God calling you into a relationship like this? Are you tired of trying to do things? Trying do things your way? Are you tired of feeling empty through the holidays and you just, you want something different? Does the season of consumerism just leave you just emotionless at the end of it? Maybe this message is for you. Maybe God wants you to rely on this promise that Jesus will crush the head of Satan, that no longer you have to live in sinfulness. Sin doesn't have to continue to rule your life. There's a better way. You could believe in Jesus today. You don't have to wait. To my believers, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what we celebrate during Advent. This is why we get so hyped for Christmas. We can look back on Christ's coming in celebration while at the same time we look forward in eager expectation of Christ coming again. You know, you know that song? I like the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. You guys know that song? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Man, y'all sound good. Good job. <laughs> While Israel would have sung this song in expectation of Christ coming, we get to celebrate it for what Christ has already done on the cross. 
rescuing God's chosen people while they were in their exile, screaming out for God to come and rescue them. We enter into Advent with generations of saints who are crying out, Lord, come quickly. Or as the old saints would have said, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come on, Lord. We get to celebrate and join in with them. That's the hope that we have when we enter into this Advent season, that Christ has won the battle, but he's coming back to rescue his chosen people. Amen? Amen. Amen. Y'all pray with me. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the message of hope that you've given us in the cross. Thank you for the nature of the promise that though Satan feels like he's winning on a day-by-day basis, that you have sent the one who is going to crush his head. And we can see that on the cross, God. We can see that you sent your son to die a death that we could not have died on our own. Thank you for rescuing us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for coming in the form of a little poor baby on our behalf. Thank you that we get to enter into this time of this this season with with expectation and celebration because we've been rescued from our sins. There's, There's no better message of hope that we can give this world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We look forward to celebrating your second coming. It's in the name of Christ that I pray. Amen.